Hello and welcome to The Will and Rob Show. It is great to be back with you. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State, here as always with my good friend, Robert Hassler, Director of Communications and Ministry Associate and Hillsdale grad. And so many titles. So, so many, many titles. titles. <laughs> and he sometimes gets upset that I don't mention all of them. And so I try to make up for it by compensating by adding in extra titles that y'all may not know. Thank Baseball, you. Thank whatever. You. The point is, great guy. Uh, we are excited to be back with you and very excited and honored to have with us Pastor Mike Park. Uh, Mike is an associate pastor, well, the associate pastor at Grace Downtown. Um, I moved here about a year and a half ago, as you know, and just have benefited tremendously from Mike's pastoring and care and leadership. And so Mike uh, did his MDiv and then his doctorate of ministry on the topic of church leadership. And as that has been a topic that we have been circulating around uh, narrowly and looking at issues with Ravi Zacharias and what has happened in, in areas of church leadership there, we kind of wanted to step back a little bit and bring in someone who is much more familiar and expert in these areas to talk about church leadership in general for people who um, are in the church, for um, an understanding of those who attend a church in the city, um, what it looks like to be a pastoral leader, what pastors need to do to lead well, and as well as what do congregations understand as pastoral leadership? What can we see is happening in church leadership? So Mike, first of all, thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. Well, we're excited for this conversation. And I guess what I want to ask first, just to get us going is what has this past year been like for you? Uh, we're, we're nearing a year of uh, a huge shift in ministry. And I can't imagine being in a church and having just this change of interacting with congregants. So love to hear from you how it's been. Yeah, this past year um, has been difficult. I think people experience COVID differently, and I'm sure different pastors will, you know, answer that question differently. But for me, this year has been difficult trying to figure out my role as a pastor in a local church context, uh, because uh, we don't get to worship in person on Sundays, and um, other events and activities all came to a screeching halt about a year ago. You know, the only contact we had was virtual, like this, online. And uh, that sort of was strange. And it took time to get used to because, again, anything new takes time. And I think pastors who are so accustomed to being in people's lives in a personal flesh way um, found it kind of hard to, or even meaningful, to connect this way. Um, and I would add to that, um, there was a healthy sense of, guilt. Um, and, and I say that, you know, half jokingly because um, guilt is never healthy, but uh, yeah, I just never felt like I was doing enough. Mm. Um, and I felt like I needed to always justify myself uh, as a pastor by doing other things, mm. or whether that was reading more uh, related to, um, you know, ministry or theology uh, or uh, trying to, you know, send more emails or uh, catch up with people on Zoom um, in all of these ways to feel like I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor and never really getting over that, um, I don't know, sense of guilt for not doing enough. It was this nagging thing always just sitting with you. And so it's like, well, uh, what am I going to do today to sort of like prove myself or even uh, 
you know, to justify my, my title as a pastor of this church. So I, those two things come to mind in addition to all the other messy things of, uh, you know, related to home, right? How do you do family? What does it mean to be a dad, husband, you know, all of that stuff, but I won't go into that. <laughs> no, but you're, you're right. It's uh, you've become a teacher and a, uh, an extra uh, responsibilities with parenting. I know that's been a thing that so many people have felt and I'm I that feeling of guilt uh I'm sure you're not alone in that 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 is uh fairly ubiquitous in fact that that especially for people like pastors where there is a need to care for people and so yeah um well I I would just love for everyone to get to hear your story of how you ended up at Grace Mm -hmm. in the heart of DC in Chinatown and with that some of the unique challenges and opportunities that are available through working in the middle of a, of a major city like Washington? Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm going to go way back uh, to answer this question because um, some of the things that I'll be touching on uh, along the way uh, have a pretty significant impact on of yeah ministry for me here in the urban context. So Allow me to go all the way back and start from the beginning. Um, Let's go. And I'll, I'll try to uh, be brief, uh, but uh, we'll see. Maybe things will come along, you know, along the way, and it will be a topic for a great conversation. But uh, I was born and raised in South Korea, um, and so I am culturally hardwired as a Korean, um, and that plays a significant role even today because, in many sense, I had to learn to be culturally pliable Um, and it's this idea of always stepping out of what is my home base the comfort zone to sort of navigate uncharted territory and to sort of dwell there for some time Um, and you know that simply means even things like preaching to a different audience Um, being in a uh ecclesiology that sort of is foreign to the Korean church uh, and, and um, yeah, philosophy of ministry, leadership, and so on and so forth. So it's l- learning to wade into the, the unknown and, uh, and learning to navigate that well. And um, because of my upbringing and some of the hard wiring that I've mentioned, I've always felt like a, a perpetual foreigner in America, but also in the PCA and even to some degree at Grace DC. Uh, I've said to my friends uh, that as Korean Americans, we are culturally homeless, right? We don't belong in Korea and we don't belong in America. We belong somewhere in the middle um, as third culture kids. And we had to sort of carve out for ourselves space, but also identity and story that sort of you know, helps to bring uh, us, the, the Korean Americans together. And, um, and, and, and that simply means that we had to live well in a marginalized space. Um, and I think that's why Korean Americans, and I'm sure other minority groups too, but we, we feel naturally drawn to Korean American friends or even uh, communities and churches. Um, I hear this all the time, you know, um, from second generation and even third generation Korean American friends uh, who asked me, how is it like being in a, uh, white majority culture church. And uh, after I explain all the challenges, but the wonders of being in the place that I am, I sort of uh, give them the 
the altar call, if you will. Hey, why don't you come join us in doing the work in places like this? And they say, man, I, I have to deal with, you know, non-Korean Americans throughout the week in, in my workplace. I just want one day a week where I can be uh, majority, uh, part of the majority culture and enjoy majority status. And I, I totally get that. Uh, to be a part of a Korean American church where you don't have to parse or explain things, right? Whether it's culture, food, whatever it may be, or you can unashamedly celebrate your love for BTS and Korean drama. <laughs> I get it. I get it. It's, there's uh, something just warm and, and something that just draws you in. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll get into this, you know, in my answering your question, Will, at some point, but that's not where I am. Uh, I think uh, the call to follow Christ, uh, you know, speaks into all aspects of life and including church life. And that's why I've decided to be where I am. Not saying everyone needs to be where I am, but I just personally feel this is where I need to be in order to, um, yeah, just live out my faith, you know, in, in, in a compelling way. Um, yeah. So to sort of get to your question, I never thought uh, like this as uh, this uh, as the background, I never thought I'd leave the Korean American church or the Asian American church. I never uh, thought I'd step outside of home uh, because again, for all of those reasons uh, that I was able to articulate or not, it just, you know, it was comfortable. But then I went to Covenant Seminary and that was the beginning of the end in the most beautiful way. Uh, I was uh, introduced to the, the full range of reform theology. I had gotten bits and pieces here and there. And uh, I had what I call the Frankenstein reform theology. It just, it was really ugly, but you know, all the parts were true, right? Uh, but then I go to the Covenant Seminary and uh, they are able to sort of show me the entire landscape mm. and it was beautiful. Um, in addition to that Covenant Seminary, introduced me to different uh, ecclesiology and even the philosophy of ministry. And uh, I learned uh, different leadership. Um, and then in my time uh, doing my doctorate work, uh, sort of unpacking the whole ministry leadership thing, uh, I was able to see church not only as an organism, but also an organ organization and uh, the need for some practical leadership to help navigate you know, uh, these turbulent waters that pastors find themselves in, but often uh, are not equipped uh, to do so. Um, but yeah, these, these things were uh, challenging in many ways. And um, I had to create new paradigms mentally to understand these things well. Again, theology, practice of that, uh, philosophy uh, of ministry and even ministry leadership. And um, it was uh, me sort of uh, realizing that, okay, uh, we are different and the difference is not bad. And, um, you know, I just need to learn to navigate this well. Things like uh, you know, high power distance versus low power distance. Uh, how does that play into leadership? How people view authority and how do you exercise authority in a responsible way? Uh, and high versus low context. How does that play into communication? Uh, even um, the preaching sometimes. Um, so it, it was basically learning uh, new skills and uh, you know, like any, anything, right? When you pick up a new instrument or new sport, 
uh, it's going to feel very awkward. And um, in some sense, I would say my time uh, at Covenant Seminary was sort of learning new skills, um, and it was awkward. Um, but it was good. Um, I, I began to see the positive sides uh, to being in this new space where I was challenged uh, to think through different things. Um, and, um, but I still never thought I would leave the Korean American church. Um, but little did I know that uh, in my demon cohort, uh, I was sitting with Glenn Holbert's close friends. So when Russ Whitfield was on his way out to plant Grace Mosaic, uh, Glenn pinged his friends and asked if they knew a minority guy that could thrive in urban contexts and you know so on and so forth. Uh, they all dropped my name. And I think at that point, Glenn was convinced that I was the guy. Um, I joke around with Glenn, you know, looking back uh, saying, if you really knew who I was, I don't think you would have hired me. Um, <laughs> You know, just again, for all the things that I just mentioned, uh, because I was so new to this world. But uh, as, I, I, as I was having these conversations with Glenn and praying through the possibility of, you know, moving back to this area, because my wife and I, we both grew up here in Northern Virginia and called this place home. <clears throat> God started doing something in my heart. In particular, two things. One, I uh, looked into my pastoral toolbox and I realized I'm missing a lot of stuff. Hmm. Uh, I think Covenant Seminary helped me to preach, teach, uh, and to some degree even counsel and lead different aspects of, you know, different ministry is in the church. But I don't think Covenant Seminary, for that matter, any seminary really prepares us to lead a church. Like that's altogether a different set of skills that you need to learn uh, on the job, I would say. And so, um, yeah, eight years in, in St. Louis, uh, having done youth ministry and even having planted a church, I realized, man, I am lacking here. I don't know how to lead a church. I don't know what it means to uh, work with the deeks or even um, session. I don't know how to manage a staff and so on and so forth. And I knew I could probably read a book or call someone uh, to sort of help them or help have them help me. Uh, to learn uh, these things, but I, I know how I learn best, which is to get my hands dirty. So I thought maybe this is God's way of opening the door for me to come and learn. Um, and the second uh, part was being able to come and be closer to our parents. Um, we have four kids and uh, I know how much our parents love them and uh, what a gift uh, they are to them. And so we thought maybe, you know, before this window closes completely, uh, it would be good to bring our kids, you know, with us to be close to our parents, to their grandparents, and uh, give them this gift of a, um, you know, grandparent relationship, if you will, so that they can uh, get to know them, hear their stories, and so on and so forth. So um, eventually we said yes, and we moved to D.C. in 2013. Okay, I need to get that right. I think it was 2013. We transitioned to Grace DC and it was hard, man. So now I'm getting to your question. It was really hard. Uh, and it was this messy knot. I couldn't untangle it. Uh, I wondered out loud often, uh, was it a denominational thing? I was part of uh, KAPC, which is like a sister denomination uh, at the time. And again, um, you know, if you belong to a Korean church, it really doesn't matter what 
denomination you are, you sort of did everything the right way, the same way. So if you walked into a Korean Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist church, it would feel the same. And unless you read the statement of faith or was there when they were doing infant baptism or not doing infant baptism, like you wouldn't know the difference. And so uh, that's sort of my theological and ecclesial, uh, ecclesiastical background. And so I, I wonder, like, is it a denominational thing where Grace DC uh, aligns itself uh, very PCA uh, in terms of liturgy and so on? Is that the difference uh, that I'm feeling here? I also thought, is it a regional thing? Uh, city versus the burbs, right? I was out in St. Louis where, you know, it was pretty much, you know, the, the burbs, right? Uh, you had giant super Walmarts and giant super targets that you could park right in front of uh, rather than <laughs> walking like four, you know, blocks just to get somewhere in order to get your groceries. I mean, that's just one example of the regional differences. But I wonder again out loud, like how much of that is that? And then there's the realistic difference between St. Louis and Washington, D.C. And you can sort of, I guess, tuck it as a subset to the whole, you know, regional thing. But D.C. is unique. Um, it draws a certain type of people. And so um, and, and it sort of perpetuates itself. D.C. has its own narrative. It draws a certain uh, types of people that continue that narrative. And so is, is it that? Uh, and then uh, I even thought about the cultural thing. Is it the Asian American versus the white majority culture, right? Um, uh, as Carl uh, uh, Ellis says, is it the whole dominant versus the subdominant where now for me it was flipped, uh, where I could in the past uh, in St. Louis go to church and I would be part of the dominant culture as an Asian American. But now uh, I am not part of the dominant culture when I walk into uh, Sunday worship service at Grace CC. So it was a combination of a lot of these things. And I didn't know how to untangle it, man. I just sat under the weight of this for years. And it took about three years for me to finally say, okay, I'm never going to solve this riddle, uh, but it's home. And I feel comfortable enough to sort of, you know, move in and out, you know, the whole pliability thing that I mentioned earlier. And, um, and I'm going to be okay with that because at the heart of it, my wife and I, we believe this is where the Lord called us to. And that's what anchored us uh, through all the challenges that we faced uh, during the first three years of trying to get acclimated in this new space. If I can just say one more thing, I know I'm sure you're dying to ask. You know, <laughs> uh, so... Um, there's this article uh, called uh, Estranged Pioneers. Uh, the author's names escape me now. But uh, boy, like this article, which talks about a, an African-American pastor and an Asian-American pastor who both left uh, their African-American and Asian-American church community to pastor in white majority context, has in so many ways described my experience uh, transitioning and pastoring at Grace DC. Uh, there are a lot of positives, but also a lot of challenges, to be honest. And if you don't have a strong sense of calling, um, I, I think there are a number of things that can trip you up, you know, uh, a number of things that will pull you back. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, um, we all need that home base, right? And uh, to be culturally pliable, you know, that's a skill that, that's tiring to learn, 
right? And master. I'm not even sure if I do it very well, but uh, I think you have, you know, like I said, I think there are a lot of reasons to go back and just say, I'm tired. I can't do this anymore. Uh, and uh, the article captures that well, but this is where I am. So, yeah. In, in those in those times where you felt the need to defend Korean culture, there was never a, a need to defend Korean barbecue, was there? Was um, that ever needed to to explain? I mean, that seems pretty you know self explanatory. Yeah, yeah. No, Korean barbecue is universal, man. You know, <laughs> meat cooked over fire. I mean, that's as like barbaric as it gets, right? I mean, you talk about history, and I think that's one thing we can all point to as a part of our shared narrative as human beings. So now Korean drama and K-pop is something that, um, you know, it's, I don't know what sort of appetite, you know, people have for that, including myself, man. K-pop is, you know, if I can just, you know, as a footnote, I, the, the Korean music scene I left back in 85 was not this, you know, <laughs> you know, we didn't have dudes dreads up like women, you know, or even, <laughs> I'm just saying, dude, I'm just saying. So, that's not my K-pop. I, you know, apparently, you know, BTS is like the thing now, but it's going to take me a while to sort of buy into that. I'll just say that. Right. Well, that sounds like that would be something that would take some adjustment. For yeah, sure. major, major. Yeah. Well, sanctification. A lot of sanctification needed there. No doubt. Um, that is that is a great story and just uh, uh, wonderful to hear. I, I love the way that you you uh, uh, talk about it the way of sort of uh, not really seeing it as a, at the end, like after those, those years as a problem to sort of be solved, but as, as just a, a reality of, of God's presence with you and, and going before you and, and uh, calling you into that space. I think that's just wonderful. I think a lot, so much of what you said about uh, sort of uh, cross-cultural engagement and, and things like that, you know, I, me and Will come from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so DC in some ways is, is different um, and, and a different kind of culture in some ways. But then obviously, you know, we're not dealing with the same sort of um, issues like uh, are, are the same sort of um, uh, things you were mentioning about sort of going from a white majority or going from a Korean majority uh, culture to a, a white majority culture. Um, I think one thing, though, that I've noticed coming to DC and being involved in the PCA in DC is that I think for so much of my experience it's been such a suburban church and then to come and see it sort of adapting in some ways to be an urban ministry in an urban context is, is kind of interesting um i i'd be interested to kind of hear what's been sort of your experience um specifically in a city uh as, as sort of what is that what is that like where do, where have you kind of seen the pca move in, in that that way over the last few years well, I mean, if you talk about PCA and the city, you sort of have to begin with Keller, right? I was going to say, we have to mention the PCA Pope here in a, in a second. Right, right. I mean, he's sort of the guy that, <laughs> yeah, he's sort of the guy that opened the door for all of us. And boy, I mean, did he sell it, you know? Again, I think it comes down to calling, right? Not, I'm not as city righteous as some of my brothers are. Uh, I'll be honest. Um you know, I don't think city is uh, inherently better than the burbs or even the rural parts of this country. People are people. They're all made in the image of God. And someone has to go and preach the gospel. And that's just the bottom line, right? Um, but there is something to being in the city. And um, so calling is one. I think you're, you know, just sort of your personality makeup is another. 
Uh, when I moved here, you know, despite all the sort of challenges I laid out earlier, I hit the ground running. I, I'd sort of like jive with the city, but my wife is not, you know, she still, you know, has this like, you know, strong affinity to the burbs. Park like right up front, you know, to a Target or Walmart. Whereas I'm like, yeah, that's a small cost to being in an exciting place. So I love the city for that reason. It, it sort of resonates with me. Uh, it's the pace that I prefer, uh, but it's also uh, a place where, where people from all walks of life, stages of life sort of come and call it home. And uh, to me, one of the things that I enjoy, but also sort of lamented about the burbs is that, you know, your house was big enough that it sort of was your domain and you never had to leave it, right? So you can recreate Eden all you want in your house. And mm -hmm. that was sort of like good enough. Whereas in the city, because that is a luxury you cannot afford, you actually have to go out and interact with people like in your neighborhood. It forces you to sort of embrace uh, the people and the place in ways that you would otherwise not uh, in the burbs, right? Because in the burbs, you know, we set up all kinds of play dates. That was the only way we were going to get FaceTime with, you know, people that, we were quote unquote friends with, whereas here it's like, yep, we're all stir crazy. Let's go out and then just run around and see who we run into. I mean, that's sort of life in the city, right? And with that some, comes something I think very beautiful. Like you interact with people uh, who are different from you. And over time you get to hear their story and you know them as human beings and, and you celebrate them. And all of these things. And, and with that, God gives you different opportunities to pray for them, to share your own story and testimony, and even the opportunity to talk about, in my case, my work as a pastor in a PCA church, which like people are like, man, like you are more rare in DC than a unicorn. So <laughs> go figures, right? Um, I've had so many people ask me questions like, you're a pastor at a church? Like, what does that mean? Like, what do you do? Like, tell me, like, I mean, it's like, it's as if they've never heard the word church or pastor or, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but it's, it's been beautiful to see those bridges being built, you know, and, um, and again, because they can't just stay locked up in their house, they got to come out and engage with me, right? <laughs> and so, you know, we continue the conversation in these ways. So, um, so I don't know if I answered that question, but I would just say, um, as far as now the, the church itself in the urban context goes, um, I love that we're forced to see the beauty and the brokenness of the world we're part of. Uh, going back to the whole idea of our suburban house being in, you know, Eden, where we can sort of, you know, turn, if we wanted to, we could shelter ourselves from the brokenness of this world. Like that, that could be a possibility in the burbs. I didn't see a single homeless person in the eight years I lived in St. Louis, we're out in the burbs, right? Mm. Just as an example, right? But here in the city, like every block, you see something that is just not right. Uh, whether it's the homeless or others that are marginalized or pushed to the side, uh, you see the brokenness, it's right before you. You can't avoid it, right? But at the same time, you see the beauty of what the uh, city offers, uh, the eclectic food scene, for example. I mean, Right, Korean barbecue, thank God for Iron Age here in Columbia Heights, um, you know, and others, right? So you have, you have these two disparate things coming together to form 
uh, a city. And, and so you sort of have to deal with that. And, and I think that sharpens your focus, your mission, uh, your sense of call to embrace, you know, all of that. And I think it gives you uh, many opportunities as a church uh, to really be the hands and feet of Christ here. So I, I love that opportunity. That's awesome. That's helpful. And I resonate with that. Having grown up in more of a rural, I mean, it's not quite suburban, not quite rural part of in Alito is there, there weren't homeless people around. There was its own form of brokenness that was present and its own form of beauty, I think as well. And the same with the city, there's this, they, they carry their own beauties and brokennesses um, based on, just what is inherent within them. And so I really appreciate what you were sharing there in terms of cultural and or theological challenges and cultural issues that arise in the city as there, it's a center of a lot of thought and culture and commerce. Mm -hmm. What are some current uh, cultural theological questions that you think the church is wrestling with that you see as unique to being in DC? Yeah. Wow. That's a loaded question. And uh, I'm sure others have answered that much better than I'm about to. So I defer to those guys. Um, but my take, and again, just one voice among many, I think these days uh, with uh, the cultural moment we find ourselves in, um, theology and culture sort of have become one. So many issues have become uh, inseparable, right? Um and you can't speak into some of these political issues, for example, uh, without having it step into the theological and the cultural worlds. It's sort of all meshed into this just mess. Um, so I'll preface my answer by saying that um, I think a couple of things come to mind. I, I think this, this race issue is gonna be a challenge. Um, again, more of a social, cultural issue uh, that has bled into the essentially political and even possibly uh, theological, right? Um, but I think that's going to be an issue. I, I think gender identity is going to be another thing. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, these are going to uh, challenge the church in many ways um, to affirm our uh, reformed faith uh, at the same time uh, being gracious um, and uh, being a faithful gospel witness. Um, I've had conversations uh, with pastor friends and I compared it like this. I think as a church, obviously compromising our theology is, that is no, no, right? We're called to stand up for the truth even at the cost of our very lives. Uh, that's very apparent. Uh, and I think that's something we can all agree on. Um, but how do we stand for truth? That's where things get a bit gray. Uh, you can take the prophetic stance of Isaiah and Jeremiah and um, speak into the culture. Um, you know, it, sometimes in, in ways that the culture needs to hear it. Um, so I'm not always against uh, that approach, but that's one way of a sort of being a church and a gospel witness in, in today's time. But the other way is what I call the Joseph, Daniel, and Esther approach, where we have the long game uh, in mind, uh, where we don't um, make every issue uh, the hill that we're willing to die on. But over the long haul, we become a faithful gospel witness, uh, even if we have to learn to wade into things that might be very gray and, and sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, but in the long run, we understand what's at stake and we're trying to win it. Right, not just win after first quarter, 
but we want to win the game. And so I think our approach, if you will, um, is, is a little different. So I think either way, I, I respect it. If one church says, no, these are our theological convictions and we're going to go with the prophetic approach, we're going to be a voice uh, and, and we're going to speak into the culture, uh, even if you know no one hears us. Hey, I, I praise God for my brothers and sisters who are willing to do that uh, because they can't betray their conscience. So praise God for them. Uh, but I, at the same time, I also praise God for these brothers and sisters who take the long game approach, uh, who say, hey, look, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, come on. They were in very questionable you know, situations. I mean, look, Esther, right? Like, what was that all about? Um, but they understood like how this was going to play itself out. And the Lord certainly used them for the greater good in saving the people. And in Joseph's case, many more uh, outside of the people of God. So, um I don't know if that answers your question, but there I, it is. Well, I, I love it. I think that's so good. I, I really appreciate you saying the the respecting of conscience. Um, Robert shared with me earlier this morning um, uh, Kevin DeYoung article that came out and him trying to make kind of this spectrum of where Christians are landing on different cultural and issues. And, you know, it seems that if, if someone's on the, one extreme or the other, uh, there is a totalizing impulse to re require everyone to be in that same place. And we maybe tolerate the ones who are a little further, but if you're on the other side, you're just anathema and don't have any place. And there does have to be a respect for the freedom of conscience um, within the church. And if we want the church to be healthy, that has, that has to be there. I, I think I just have one sort of quick follow-up on that. So, uh, uh, again, I, I, I love it. I like the way that you, the differentiate between the short sort of the, you know, being prophetic right now and then sort of playing the long game. Um, I think for a lot of people who look at, let's just say sort of the side that's like playing the long game, uh, the sort of um, uh, default response is to say, uh, uh, well, what, what are you, what are you doing to, uh, what are some of the steps you're taking in that long game? And what does that, what does that look like? And I think one thing I've sort of been uh, keying in on is, is catechism and just sort of the, not just the, the what's coming from the pulpit, but what your church itself is doing to form its congregants and what that looks like and sort of uh, formulating that mindset and getting by what, what is, and maybe this is sort of, maybe a, you can step back from here too. You know, what does it look like um, to see your leadership in, in a church as discipleship, as the way that you take on leadership um, as a way of discipling uh, your flock into kind of getting that buy-in from the whole church? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great question. A uh, couple of thoughts here. One, as a pastor, it's hard to disciple the entire church, right? Because discipleship is so much it happens uh, uh, in a relational context, life on life, right? As you walk together, uh, there's a lot of, you know, communication, right? Um, uh, conversations around different topics and, and encouraging one another, the whole concept of iron sharpening iron. Uh, so I, I do think pastors have um, a unique calling and even an opportunity to do, to do discipleship, which may not fit that mold. So I do think pastors uh, can disciple the congregation uh, in a couple of ways. One, I think it is through the preaching and teaching from the pulpit, right? Um, the way we preach the word um, and help people to understand 
uh, how the word applies to them in this cultural moment is probably one of the primary ways that we can disciple our people to think biblically, to engage the culture biblically, um, to be Christ-like, to be humble, to have that different posture uh, rather than, you know, uh, just saying, hey, everything is sinking, you know, just forget, abandon ship right right now. Let's let's go form our own like cultural uh, uh, Christian silos where we can sort of be together, you know, away from the world. Uh, I think uh, preaching and teaching is one. Another way that pastors can disciple uh, their congregant is by creating uh, an ethos in the congregation, right? You are, as the pastor, um, the primary influencer of your congregation through your preaching and teaching, obviously, but through your example, uh, through the stories we tell and how we select those stories that are being told. Uh, this uh, constant, you know, shared narrative uh, that sort of creates identity for us. I think that's another way that we can uh, disciple our people to say, this is who we are. This is what we're about. And we're going to remind you of that and reinforce that through different stories and examples um, that are told and lived out here in the church. That's another way we can do it. Um, I, I think another way uh, sort of touched on this in the, just in the previous point is to model it uh, because Discipleship is more caught than taught. And so when you become uh, an example uh, for your people who are watching you, whether from afar or up close, they're going to pick up on things, um, things that are said or unsaid. And those things are going to speak volumes into sort of how they understand what it means to live out their faith uh, these days in Washington, DC, uh, perhaps even more than what we say from the pulpit. And so I think, you know, we do have, uh, we definitely have influence as pastors and um, we can leverage a lot of these things and be intentional about how we, uh, you know, leverage them. Um, whether we're directly involved like preaching or teaching or indirectly involved in sort of, you know, propping up uh, those who would be telling stories or um, even raising up leaders that would help, you know, continue the, the story and the work and the, and the mission, right? Um, so you, I think there are different ways that you can do discipleship, but it's just not going to be the whole life on life thing. Where does the session come in then giving a shout out to our particular unique uh, PCA form of church government, our ecclesiology, especially a church the size of graces. If you have a 50 member congregation, it's, it's different than if you have over 300 people in there. Mm -hmm. How do you rely on elders to help you lead? And has that been a tough thing to do? Because you come out of seminary and, and you've been pastoring, then all of a sudden there's this feeling of like, well, I, I can't do this, but it, it can, it can be difficult to hand those reins and to trust your brothers and, and pastoring yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's uh, one of those things you learn on the job, right? And uh, there are so many factors that play into how that actually happens. Uh, thankfully, I think uh, for Grace DC elders who are watching this, um, <laughs> I think we have a great session. I do. Um, and um, yeah, these guys are, are dear brothers and uh, they're in the trenches with me. So, uh, you know, we um, tell the candidates early on that this is not a board uh, or even a steering committee that you sort of do your work from a distance, but you don't get your hands dirty. You know, we tell them, 
you know, one of the primary job descriptions of an elder is to be a shepherd. And uh, how do you shepherd well? Well, you better know your flock, right? You can't be like out there, you know, I don't know where, but sort of barking out commands from a distance and critiquing the pastors for not doing certain things right. You know, as sh uh, shepherds, we need to be among the sheep. Uh, we need to know them and we need to care for them, as Jesus says in John chapter 10. And I think these guys have bought into that idea. So they have made my work in, in terms of entrusting these brothers and bringing them into the inner circle to share responsibility, to pray together and care for our flock. Uh, they've helped tremendously uh, on that front. So I am really thankful. Yeah. I can't imagine like doing ministry without these brothers, really. <laughs> that's a, a tremendous gift because I don't think that's the case with every pastor. I'm, there are definitely churches out there where that is somewhat dreaded. So, um, well, Mike, thank you so much. Robert, do you have any other questions here? No, I think that was awesome. Mike, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, no, I think this is great. Thanks uh, for doing this, guys. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thank you all again for listening. Uh, you can check out Grace DC Sermons on YouTube. So there's a, a, a whole, I guess, months of sermons and uh, videos, and you can tune in this Sunday at 10 o'clock uh, at the, the, I think the, the page name is just Grace DC, correct? Yeah, if you go to uh, YouTube, you can just go ahead and type in Grace DC and something will come up. Okay. Okay, there we go. Well, thank you all so much for listening and we'll be back with you next week.